Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and this is Talking Apes. On this episode of Talking Apes, we're investigating a couple of African crime scenes and exploring the invisible world of virodiversity. Viruses are a part of our world, not a world most of us see, but a world critical to our survival and sometimes our demise. Over the past year, all of us have come to know the power of a virus. One virus in particular has turned our world upside down, the coronavirus. It's one of many in a world of emerging infectious diseases and part of a phenomenon known as zoonosis. This time on Talking Apes, we're joined by disease detective Dr. Tony Goldberg. Tony is a professor of pathobiological sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Veterinarian Medicine. Tony is also a primatologist and a veterinarian. He combines them to be a disease detective. I mean, come on, how cool is that? Wouldn't every kid want to grow up to be a disease detective? Well, Tony studies the ever-lurking emissaries of infectious disease. Viruses, bacteria, fungi, parasites. He sees them as epidemiological Easter eggs that nature sprinkles across the landscapes of the world. They're hiding in the soil, the water, plants, insects, and frequently in other animals, even apes like us. Pathogens that seemingly spring from nowhere to sow misery and death. This is Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. Welcome to Talking Apes, Tony. It's good to have you here. It's great to be here, Jerry. I am so excited about today's uh, Talking Apes because... This is one of my great passions, nearing obsession, uh, is talking about the ecology of disease. And there were, it was interesting when I was doing some of the research, uh, there were two, two words that kept emerging. One was emerging infectious diseases and the other was uh, zoonosis, which are two words that, you know, I bumped into over the years in, in my interest in this. But there was a word that popped up called virodiversity that I heard you use. And I love that word. I hadn't heard that word before. And it got me really excited about today's talk. And I have to admit, we're, we're up early doing this, but I woke up a, a few hours ago and I was sleuthing around on the internet about virodiversity. It just is such a cool concept. But before we get into all of that, what I would like to do is I'd like to start with how does one become a disease detective and what, what kicked off your fascination with diseases? Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I know a few disease detectives besides myself, and I think we all have had individual pathways to getting where we are today. Uh, so my, my example might not be typical, but I guess if you really boil it down, it's about being fascinated with natural history. In, in the old days, so to speak, when a lot of the world was unexplored by Western powers, you could go out and, and, you know, learn amazing new things about new species and their behaviors and their ecologies and, uh, sort of have this joy of exploration in your life. But that, that's harder today, at least for big animals that we know about. So for me, being a disease detective is learning about the, the smaller organisms on earth that we don't know so much about that also happen to be very important for our health. So, um, 
You know, that, that's one answer to your question. The other answer is that for someone like myself and like you who cares about wildlife and especially about our closest relatives, the primates, you can't help but come face to face with infectious disease at some point in your research. And when that happens, it's a very hard thing to ignore. Nobody can. So that happened to me early in my career, and it made me really rethink where I wanted to go. I did not set out early in life to do what I'm doing today. I would say a lot of us didn't. And so, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm trained as a, as a primatologist. Uh, that's where I, that's what I did for my PhD, but I'm also a veterinarian, which I, uh, which I pursued after my PhD. And the, the reason for that was that, um, during my studies of primates, I became acutely aware of the importance of health and disease. And, and this was, you know, not to date myself, back in the early 1990s. So um, it was kind of before the, the general public recognition of the importance of emerging infectious disease. It was just sort of starting to bubble up. So, you know, I, I, I like to say that careers in academia are like comedy. Timing is everything. I just <laughs> happened to be in the right place at the right time and interested in something that turned out to be a big deal. Uh, but for me personally, personally, it was a fascination with natural history and, and the diversity of the natural world and grave concerns about primate health. Well, that's really interesting that, I mean, you should say early 1990s, because that kind of parallels this whole time, I guess, of emerging diseases. If, if we look at it, it was AIDS, HIV, that really kind of put it on the map, I think, for a lot of people, even though I think for most people listening, they wouldn't think of HIV necessarily as from an ecological standpoint, it just, you know, it so quickly became a healthcare issue. Um, you know, it was a medical issue. So that, that did, did that event. play into it? Yeah, no, that, that was the key event. You're absolutely right. That is what uh, made me reevaluate my career and made a lot of my colleagues reevaluate their careers too. I, I like to show a graph in some of my lectures where I go into the medical literature in the PubMed database and I, I search for the term emerging infectious disease by year. And it's not even there in before about 1980, and then it just pops up a little bit, but it's really the early 1990s to the early 2000s when it just takes off. And I got my graduate degree during that time. I remember that time. It was because of this, the amazing story of the origins of AIDS. Uh, that was a wake-up call. I still see that as the sort of the, the modern mother of all pandemics. Because prior to that, we sort of were in this uh, post-World War II age of complacency about infectious disease, you know, due to the efficacy of antibiotics and the development of vaccines and, and uh, great strides in healthcare. And then along came this virus seemingly out of nowhere that defied every effort to control it. And, it, it, you know, I really have to credit the amazing work of... Um, of other other scientists like Beatrice Hahn, for example, who did incredible sleuthing to discover the origins of the AIDS virus. And it turns out that it originated probably some time ago. Uh, so not, you know, within the last few decades, maybe centuries, somewhere around there, 
from chimpanzees in Central Africa. That's where we get this idea of sort of bushmeat and human primate contact and hunting and the, the wildlife human interface. It all kind of, that narrative, as I see it, evolved during the investigations into the origins of AIDS. So, and I was at the time studying chimpanzee genetics and what I was studying suddenly became important for understanding where the chimps were that gave rise to the AIDS virus. So I got, got sucked into this, this very different world that uh, I'd never really experienced and realized that, you know, this is really important. It's not just uh, about HIV AIDS just, but it's about a phenomenon that is has repeated itself throughout human evolutionary history and that had been affecting apes for longer than people acknowledge and was sort of an, an, an open niche for research. Yeah, I mean, I think it's maybe important to, and, and you could explain this better than I can, um, but it's important also for people listening out there to realize that there's HIV, but there's also SIV. There's a, there's a simian version of that. Maybe you could explain that a little bit better than, than yeah, I Yeah, good, good point. So, you know, to dispel any misconceptions, chimps don't have HIV. Um, chimps have a relative of HIV called SIV for simian immunodeficiency virus. And in fact, a great number of African monkeys and apes have their own versions of simian immunodeficiency virus. And on occasion, a few of those, not just one, but a few have jumped into humans, probably as a result of direct contact in the form of hunting or keeping pets. And one of those, uh, specifically a strain called uh, HIV, a, a strain of SIV that led to HIV-1 group M, evolved into HIV-1 group M, which then spread across the world and, and started the AIDS pandemic. So it, it's, it's a slightly complicated story because it wasn't just one event, but the overall picture is that uh, African primates are full of these simian immunodeficiency viruses. They often infect people who come into close contact with primates. And once we got very unlucky and one of these viruses was able to evolve into a human virus that then spread, spread throughout the world. And, and we're, we're still in the age, age of AIDS. You know, there's no vaccine. There's no cure. There are phenomenal, uh, antiviral drug regimens now that are just, you know, one of the great advances of in the history of medicine. But we're still not rid of it. So even though today, you know, everybody's mind is on COVID, I I think, and this is a safe prediction because I'll be long dead before it can be proven or disproven. <laughs> but um, I predict that in the annals of medical history, our generations will be viewed as the generations of AIDS because that is the predominant pandemic that has uh, shaped our lives, I think from the standpoint of understanding the origins of epidemics to uh, really rethinking our the, the biological and social dimensions of global health. I, it's really interesting that you should say that about, about AIDS because um, I was on the verge of, of connecting up with some, uh, some of the doctors without borders around the, that 2015 Ebola outbreak in, in Guinea, Sierra Leone area, West Africa. And so I was doing a lot of research at that 
time about it because I was interested in, again, the ecology of it. Like, how do, how do these things break loose? How do they tie in? We'll talk some more about that. But I, I ran across a chart that put it in perspective and it showed that the 20 deadliest diseases in Africa um, the year about that year, this was a couple of years after that was uh, after that. And Ebola, and as, as deadly as that Ebola outbreak was, um, several thousand people, it didn't even register in the top 20 diseases. AIDS was number two. Yeah. After yeah. malaria, I imagine. Yeah. After yeah. malaria. So it, it was it was really interesting and it really put AIDS in, in perspective, HIV in perspective, because you don't hear as much about it. Um, you know, it's it's not front headline news like it was in the 90s. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 yeah, it's, go ahead. It's, no, sorry. It, it's not. But, um, you know, it kind of reminds me of, and this is going to seem weird, the Jurassic Park films. Remember the first first Jurassic Park when the kind of, the, the, the star dinosaur was the T-Rex. It was this big behemoth and that was like the thing. And then in the subsequent films, the star became like the velociraptor and these new dinosaurs. And the T-Rex was like this, be, became this sort of thing that was so big, but in the background that we almost forgot how important it used to be. That, that to me is, is HIV AIDS. It's a, uh, it's a disease that's still very much with us. And it is the 600 pound dinosaur or gorilla in the room, but we've lived with it long enough that we've, we've almost begun to take it for granted. And, you know, a large part of that is because of these wonderful uh, antiviral drugs that we have that can suppress it for the lifetime of a person. Um, but still, it's there. And if you look at the statistics, global AIDS deaths to date are over 40 million. So that eclipses any other emerging infectious disease or pandemic of late. You know, it, it's it's similar in, there, there are lots of charts on, you know, which pandemics have, have caused the most death. HIV AIDS is up there, the Black Plague, uh, you know, these historic epidemics. Um, SARS coronavirus too is, you know, to, not to diminish its importance because it is it's a formative force in our society right now, but it's actually not, uh, it, it, it's not at the same level as some of these other pandemics of the past in terms of its impact on the global population. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you put some of that in perspective. I mean, there's a wonderful book called Mosquito, and it's all about the history of the mosquito. And the mosquito is, uh, the estimate is that it's killed half of the people that have ever lived on this planet um, in the history of the planet. And through one thing or another and how it's affected the flow, we, we think about, I think, uh, you know, COVID and how it's affecting the global economy and other things right now. But you think about something like mosquitoes and carrying as a vector carrying malaria and other things and how that's impacted the flow of wars and agriculture i mean all of the things that have have gone on and especially in an area you know where you were you started your work in in uganda you know malaria in that area is i i mean it's just people treat it like the common cold in some cases because it's like everybody has it it seems yeah. so that that sort of brings me to um to Kibali, since that was where you started, let's talk a little bit about that because I think Kibali brings together. So maybe you can describe a little bit more about Kibali as a landscape and where it sits. Um, but also, 
it's it's interesting because it's it's referred to as a hot spot, uh, you know, kind of a, a hot spot of some of this stuff. But I think it's really I. Th- I think of it as a jackpot from a virology standpoint, because you have all these primates there. So I'll, I'll let you take it from there. Why you talk, talk to us about Kabbalah, your work there, and some of the things that you've discovered. Sure. So um, when I started out in graduate school working with Richard Rangham, who you know, um, I did my PhD work on chimpanzee behavior and genetics in Kibali National Park, Uganda, where I still work today. Kibali is a lovely place. It's a forest national park um, in the western part of Uganda, sort of the central western part of Uganda. And on a clear day from the main research station, you can see across a valley to snow-capped mountains, the Ruanzori Mountains, otherwise known as the Mountains of the Moon, which sounds very romantic. Um, so it's high elevation. It's about the height of Denver. So as a result, it's not a hot, steamy, you know, leech-infested rainforest where, you know, you, you, you wouldn't really want to go there. It's actually a lovely, technically it's a, a montane semi-deciduous forest, which means it's high up and the trees lose some of their leaves some of the time. So walking through Kibali feels a little bit like walking through the woods in the summer, for example, here in my home state of Wisconsin. There's a, a carpet of leaves on the ground. It's open. It's you know pretty and pleasant, lovely temperatures. The difference is you see a ton of monkeys where you, you really don't see those here in Wisconsin. <laughs> um, it's famous as a biodiversity hotspot for primates. It's got one of the most diverse primate communities in the world and the highest biomass of leaf-eating monkeys in the world. And that's, in fact, why it was originally set up as a research site, because uh, it was just remarkable in that respect. So if you walk through the forest on any given day for a two-hour hike, you would encounter red colobus monkeys, black and white colobus monkeys, which are the two leaf eaters. You might see uh, red-tailed guenons, which are these cute little monkeys with a white button nose that eat a lot of insects and fruits. You might see mangabees, which are these big black monkeys that eat seeds, or blue monkeys, which make this funny, this funny uh, call. And you might see chimps. So it's got the highest population of chimpanzees in Uganda, and it's famous for its chimpanzees. Um, there are several groups that are studied by researchers and are used to the presence of people. So if you're, you know, a researcher who studies the chimps, you can actually get quite close to them and we know them by name. So it's kind of a magical place. It's, there are not many places in the world where you have that high a density and diversity of charismatic megafauna that are really spectacular animals that tolerate people. Because most other places where those types of animals live, they're hunted and their forests are disappearing. So it's um, it's a remarkable place. It is it's very popular among researchers for all those reasons. You know, you can fly to Uganda, and a week later, you can be out there with your field notebook taking behavioral observations on primates. Um, so that that's the background. But it gets even more interesting, in my opinion, when you go 
beyond the border of the park. Because Kibali used to be part of a continuous stretch of forest that went from the Congo Basin all the way to the uh, Indian Ocean, to the coast of Africa. And that was cleared over the centuries. And now Kibali is an island surrounded by a sea of agriculture, in many cases, tea plantations, which are beautiful, these rolling hills of dark green vegetation that go almost as far as the eye can see. But what it means is that there is a, um, you know, th there are sharp demarcations between wildlife habitats and human habitats. And there is an interface zone that occurs both around the edge of the park and, you know, sort of leaks out in both directions. Trimates in Kibali will come out of the forest to raid crops, for example, to move between small patches of forest. And people will go into the forest to collect firewood, to get water. There's, you know, to just walk through there. There's also, unfortunately, illegal activities such as hunting and trapping. So it's not uh, the Kibali I remember from 1991 when I first went there, which was sort of remote and relatively untouched. It's a dynamic ecosystem where people and primates interact in all sorts of interesting ways and lots of other wildlife too, and domestic animals like dogs and cows and goats. So uh, it's a mixing zone as well as a primate diversity hotspot. Hmm. Yeah, I, that's why this this term network sort of network interface came up. And I was I was really fascinated by it because I don't think that it typically we think uh, we, we think of, again, diseases um, as a medical health care issue. We don't look at it from an ecology standpoint, but from from looking at your work, it, the social science that really struck me. Um, and we don't think of disease as a social science and, and that interface, uh, you know, as, as, so as you start working, as you said, you know, you're looking at domestic wildlife, you're looking at, uh, or domestic animals, wildlife and people, that sort of triangle. But there's also this sort of medical ecology, social science triangle that's at work. Um, maybe, maybe you could just talk a little bit more about the social science and how, that has become, you know, over this last 20, 30 years, um, because I, I, I want to back up just a minute, if I can, to you mentioned this this chart that uh, that had in, uh, the, the use of the term infectious diseases, uh, emerging infectious diseases. And I happen to see that chart in, in a couple of the programs that you had done. And it, it does. It's sort of flatlined until the early 90s. And then it begins to 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 do a, a fairly rapid acceleration um, after that. What I'm, I'm curious about doing is actually going back and looking at things like the acceleration of deforestation and fragmentation and mapping those against that chart, because I think there are going to be some interesting alignments that come out of that. And and that gets to the social science piece yeah, of this. You're right. It's, it's a hard, you know, the, these sort of time trend correlations are very hard because everything changes over time. So I'm sure the trend of emerging infectious diseases just looking at news reporting or medical literature would track climate change, deforestation, uh, you know, human population growth, 
sea surface temperature, anything like that you want. I mean, there's a funny chart I once saw where I think climate change itself is highly correlated with the number of films that Nicolas Cage started. Uh, so, you know, there's lots of, of spurious correlations out there and lots of general correlations. But that, that's, that is where I and many other people started. You know, we, we came into this because of, you know, the, the narrative surrounding HIV AIDS with the, the idea that there are things that we're doing to the physical environment which are creating opportunities for infectious disease transmission from animals to people. Um, so we, we, and I, when I say we, I mean me and my contemporaries who many of my colleagues have worked in this field, we went out looking for those things. You know, what are people doing? And we saw them. We saw deforestation, as you know. We saw uh, encroachment, you know, kind of the, these leaky borders between natural areas and human human populated areas. We saw um, hunting and we saw trapping and we saw uh, primates and other animals coming out of the forest. So we saw these things. And um, different ones so settled at different levels for studying them. A lot of my colleagues sort of went global, which is great. And they looked at global trends, like you're, you're saying, and I did very fancy global maps of population growth and deforestation and, and all these things that we now call drivers in these large scale phenomena that are somehow driving this global trend in emerging infectious disease. I took a slightly different tack towards the social sciences because I was more interested in not, not these large-scale global drivers, but the, the on-the-ground ecology of disease. What, you know, how actually were these wild animal viruses or bacteria or parasites getting into people? You know, were they, were people shaking hands with primates? Were, you know, you know, what, what were the behaviors? Because when you get down to it, even something as massive as the AIDS pandemic, we think began with the behavior and choices of one person. Somebody decided for whatever personal or socioeconomic or cultural reasons to uh, hunt a chimp or to come in contact with a chimp some other way. And that through, through that person's choice and a series of very unfortunate events led to a pandemic. The, the best analogy I know is to wildfires. You know, it can be one person flicking a cigarette butt out of a, the window of a moving car can ignite forest fires like we've seen in the past few years out west. So I became sort of, I'm still very interested in these global drivers, but I became very curious about, you know, how were people deciding to interact with primates? What were their core motivations? And that's where my you know, training in, in primatology and, and in biological anthropology sort of hit a wall. And I realized that what this boils down to is some serious social science, uh, sociology, e economics, psychology, you know, to understand people's core motivations. And, and I guess the, the impetus behind that is that I, I, I thought that that might be a more feasible entry point for intervention and change. Because if the answer to solving the world's emerging infectious disease problems is to 
solve climate change, population growth, social inequity, gender bias, you know, racism, and, and things on that scale, then it's daunting. But maybe if we can kind of find these incisive entry points at the level of education, that would be more feasible for for addressing this crisis. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. You you mentioned this crossover of disease from primates to humans, but one of the things that you you worked on and you were there when it happened in Kabali was the reverse of that. Yeah, that, which that, is a really interesting story. I think and maybe yeah, you so could, the, that that was a that was a big deal uh, for me and for others. So I went to Kibali to study emerging infectious diseases that were zoonoses. The first big uh, research grant I got to study there was to understand the processes that might have led to the emergence of AIDS. So we knew that the primates there had simian immunodeficiency viruses, and we were studying human behavior and primate behavior to understand how those primate viruses might get out of their natural reservoirs and go into people. So it was very zoonosis-centered. But in the course of working there, I didn't really see a lot of real zoonoses. I mean, you heard stories. We certainly knew about zoonoses of the past, and I could see ways it could happen. But what was really apparent were sick primates, you know, especially chimps. So every now and then we would see chimpanzees get horribly sick with respiratory disease. They would be coughing and sneezing or snotty and they would be just lying on the forest floor, unable to move, looking just miserable. And then we, we wouldn't see those individuals again. And we would presume that they were dead, uh, which is a safe assumption, especially for, for males, which don't leave their, their group. So if they, don't show up anymore, they've died. Um, and sometimes we actually found carcasses. So we knew that there was something going on. And this realization kind of began in around 2010 or so that um, diseases don't care about directions. And the transmission of disease between species is not a one-way street. It's not just about zoonosis. It's about the opposite too, reverse zoonosis or anthroponosis, where we give diseases to animals and every other kind of gnosis, which we don't have names for, where, you know, they're animals to animals in the wild and domestic. So really the complexity of disease transmission in nature is as varied as the ecology of the hosts that the diseases infect. Things go from, as we know, from wildlife to people and people from wildlife, but also from, you know, bats to primates, from primates to rodents, from rodents to birds. You know, there are all these different things that can happen. And um, so that was a realization. But from a conservation perspective, we realized we had a problem and we had to understand what was killing the apes we were studying. Uh, the number one cause of mortality in the Kanyawara group of chimpanzees that I've been most closely involved with over the years is respiratory disease, more even than hunting. 
uh, this, we published this, uh, last year in, in a paper. So we, we, you know, we and others around Africa who are studying chimps started to realize that something bad was happening to the chimps. And it was again in the around 2010 or so that technologies improved to the point where we were able to actually diagnose some of these diseases. This, you know, the first, the first successes in this regard, uh, can be attributed to my colleague Fabian Leendertz in, in Germany, who was studying chimps in West Africa, who started to, uh, who, who, you know, realized that if you're, if you've got a snotty nose and you're coughing and sneezing, you're also swallowing some of that and any pathogens that are in your nose are going to go through you and wind up in your poop. So, uh, he developed non-invasive methods for diagnosing respiratory diseases from fecal samples, which you can get without disturbing animals. So he and, and others, uh, myself included, applied those techniques. And the answer was remarkable. In almost all cases where chimpanzees were getting sick and dying of these respiratory infections, they were common human viruses that were causing it. Things that typically just cause the common cold in people or the sniffles in children. Viruses with names like metanumovirus, respiratory syncytial virus, parainfluenza virus, uh, rhinovirus, adenovirus, um, you know, just kind of your, your typical daycare center sniffles. And they, they were, you were finding all of those in chimps? We're, so yes, um, in the beginning, uh, I don't remember what the first one was, but um, one of the early ones was metanumovirus, which is a particularly nasty form of the common cold. But we found that in East Africa. Uh, Fabian and his group found that in West Africa. Uh, there was a gorilla case in, in Rwanda. So, you know, that one came on the radar. Then there was a uh, respiratory syncytial virus, which is another one. We found the first case of a rhinovirus infecting wild chimps, which was quite a story. And then we found more metanumovirus and then parainfluenza virus. So I, one of the nice things that uh, has evolved over the years for me here in Wisconsin is a great collaboration with our Department of Pediatrics. Because um, when we realized that these viruses were mostly viruses of children, we approached them and they have tests for all of them. There are about 20 to 30 pathogens, bacteria, and viruses that cause the sniffles and the common cold in people, especially in children. We've found, I don't know, five, six, seven of those in chimps. My guess is every single one of them can infect chimps. And it's just a matter of time before we find them. Why so, kids? Why yeah. pediatrics? Is, is, right. is there any... Sorry to interrupt, but... No, no, that, it's important. So, so yeah. yeah, why pediatrics? The, the story is that the viruses that we've been finding infecting and killing chimps in Africa are viruses that cause respiratory disease in human children. They're pediatric viruses. They are the viruses that we remember from childhood when we wake up with a fever and we feel terrible and we don't go to school for a day or two and we get to eat chicken soup in bed when mom takes care of us. Uh, and then those viruses aren't so much of a problem when we get older because we've developed immunity to them. So 
in the human population, these types of viruses are maintained in transmission cycles between kids, kids in schools, kids in daycare centers, kids on the playground. So they're diagnosed here, at least in the pediatrics department, because that's where they cause some problems. And the story is really interesting. In most kids, they just cause flu-like symptoms, fever, uh, mild disease, and then you get over them. In most adults, you don't even know you have them because you've developed immunity. And if you've got any symptoms at all, they're extremely mild. So you probably don't even notice. So right now, you or I could be infected with one of these agents and not even know it. But there's a subset of kids and a subset of adults who do get very sick. Those kids and those adults are ones who are also very prone to asthma. And one of the reasons behind that is that there's a group of people who have a different ancient viral receptor in, in, on their cells because they have a gene that encodes for it. And the story here is that um, most people, so, so let, me, let me back up a bit. Um, this, this story came out of an investigation we did in 2013 of the Kibali chimps in Kanyawara community who suffered a really bad respiratory disease outbreak. We applied some, uh, some fancy molecular lab methods to figure it out, and it turned out to be rhinovirus C, which is the most common cause of the common cold in humans worldwide. And that was remarkable because before that, no one ever knew that rhinovirus could see, could infect anything other than humans. Interestingly, we know more about the biology of rhinovirus C than just about any other of these common cold viruses. And we know exactly how it latches onto cells in the human respiratory tract. It, uh, there's a particular receptor that it attaches to that lets it get into the cell. In humans, there's two forms of this receptor. One is the most common form, which uh, is resistant to attachment by this virus. But there's another less common form that is not resistant to this virus. And if you have this form, you're likely to get rhinovirus, and you're also 10 times more likely to get asthma. So it has something to do with um, infection, immunity, and respiratory disease. Is it always linked to asthma? I mean, if you yes. if you see somebody with asthma, you always see this. Not always, not always, but it's a very strong link. In fact, this particular allele, this version of a gene, is one of the uh, one of the markers that's included in the twenty three and Me panel because it's such a strong association. And I know people who have done twenty three and Me and also have asthma, and they say, "Oh, that's why I have asthma because I have this allele." So, you know, why do humans have these two alleles? Um, it's because the resistant allele is something that we evolved probably during the first agricultural revolution six or 8,000 years ago when we began to live in big cities to confer resistance to rhinovirus C and other pathogens like it. So this resistant allele is our evolutionary solution to the ancient plague of rhinovirus C, which, uh, you know, would have been deadly back then. It, it, you know, it would have been killing children. Now we've evolved resistance, but 
The key here is that chimps have not. That was so, my question was, do we see it in chimps or any other primates? No, we don't. So in every non-human primate that has been sequenced for its genome or at this particular place has the equivalent of this susceptible allele. And we, when this rhinovirus C hit the Kanyuara chimps, we genotyped every one of those chimps at the receptor locus. And every one of those chimps had the uh, receptor that in humans makes you susceptible to rhinovirus C and asthma. So the story is that we, over you know, our recent evolutionary history, have evolved genetic resistance to these common cold viruses, but chimpanzees have never had that opportunity. They haven't been exposed and their populations haven't been big enough. And we've, we've searched the databases. We've never found a chimp or an ape that has this resistant allele. So it all made sense. When we realized this, and when we look back on this terrible outbreak of rhinovirus, rhinovirus C and the Kanyuara chimps, we realized that these chimps looked just like a child with this susceptible allele coming into the emergency room of the pediatric of a, of a hospital and being treated by the pediatrics unit for severe upper respiratory disease infection. So th these chimps are like a, a like a, a version of what people must have been like before the agricultural revolution, when before they'd evolved resistance to these to these diseases. So today. What we have is, is a global population of apes with receptors on their respiratory cells that make them, make them exquisitely susceptible to this particular virus. And my guess would be to other viruses as well. And I think that's why we see these relatively benign sniffles viruses causing 10, 15% mortality among adult healthy chimps in the wild it's because they have no genetic resistance and that i assume would only accelerate as we start seeing these uh, as we were talking about before the network interfaces as they begin to grow as we see more you know more intrusion into forests and more fragmentation and more contact with humans um i would assume that we would also see an acceleration in that kind of spread yeah we're, um, we're there. does that make sense oh yeah, okay we're, we're there already i mean it's hard to imagine it accelerating much more than it is right now. Every population of chimps that has frequent human contact suffers repeated respiratory disease outbreaks. Every population that I know of. Um, and, you know, it's not just the last five or 10 years. If you uh, read, read Jane Goodall's book, The Chimpanzees of Gombe, um, she describes outbreaks of pneumonia happening in chimps in the 1960s. In fact, I, I, you know, she, she talks about one particular chimp who was her all-time favorite chimp, David Graybeard, who was a uh, sweet male chimp who was one of the first to accept her as, as, you know, sort of in a way into chimpanzee society, at least certainly showed a level of curiosity, interest, and acceptance that the other chimps didn't. And incidentally, Time Magazine rated David Greybeard one of uh, the world's 15 most influential animals ever. Uh, I don't remember what the others are, I, uh, but th yeah, it's a funny one. Uh, but David Greybeard died during an outbreak of pneumonia. And of course, we don't know the cause. 
this was before any of this happened, but it was documented that these things happened back then. And knowing what we know today, it's likely that this could have been an early example of reverse zoonotic transmission through, through no one's fault because we didn't know about this back then. But, um, you know, looking through the lens of history, it, it's, it's, uh, it's entirely possible. Speaking of looking through the lens, we, uh, we have just a, a short time left and I, I there's uh, looking through the lens. It, it makes me think about the other interesting story I wanted to talk to you about. And that was, that's on, on the other side of the, of the African continent in West Africa in Takagama, which is uh, one of our, our program partners and the chimpanzees that they take care of in the Takagama chimpanzee sanctuary. And I mentioned looking through the lens because it was a colleague of yours that was looking through the lens. I read one evening and spotted this strange virus shape there that triggered this. So when we started off uh, talking apes today, we were talking about uh, you know this connection that that I had come to know you about through Richard Rangham and the connection of, of what was going on at Kabali and your connection also to Takagama in Sierra Leone. Um, they have had over the years uh, a horrific problem with chimps dying, uh, unknown. And so I'd like you to take us down that road, if you if you would, is to like how you got involved with Takagama, you know, thousands of miles away on the other side of the continent and their chimp problem. And because I think it's a really... Um, and, and I'm sure there's some parts of it that I, I have no clue about, which I'm excited to hear about. But I, I think it's a really going back to you being a disease detective. It's it's a great sleuthing story, I think, you know, this mystery of this, why these chimps were dying and, and a number of chimps. It wasn't just one or two. It's yeah. like over the years, it was a lot of them. So take take us take us to Sierra Leone. And where does the story start for you? Sure. Well, so. When one becomes known as a disease detective, people come out of the woodwork to uh, ask you to help with, with disease mysteries. So I started out interested in zoonoses because of the origins of AIDS. Then I became aware of reverse zoonoses because of these deadly chimp outbreaks in East Africa. And then I, I and others became aware of diseases that may not even have had to do with zoonotic transmission or reverse zoonotic transmission, but were diseases of conservation, diseases that were having severe effects on wildlife just by themselves. And one of the big ones in the world of apes was the Takugama mystery disease. Takugama is a wonderful place. It's a chimpanzee sanctuary in Sierra Leone. It's the, the only one in Sierra Leone. And it houses at any given time about 100 chimps that have been rescued from the pet or the bushmeat trade. So they usually come in as orphans, uh, young chimps, and they're uh, nursed back to health because they're usually in really bad shape. And then they are uh, put into enclosures with other chimps where they you know, tragically have to live out their lives. But there's a dedicated staff of, of caregivers and veterinarians who work there who who are you know, passionate about what they do. And the dream is someday to introduce them or to reintroduce them into some forest where they can live lives as wild chimps again. There's lots of problems. 
doing that. You know, where's the forest? How do you do it? But one of the problems unique to Takugama is that over the past 15 years or so, they have experienced a real disease problem. Half of the chimps that have died there, or maybe even a little bit over half, have died of this mystery disease that is quite horrific. It's um, the, the best ways to describe it, it, it. The typical course of events is that a chimpanzee will be healthy and happy one day, maybe look a little bit uh, lethargic that evening. And then the next day, when the staff wake up, that chimpanzee will be staggering, vomiting, or maybe just dead. Um, so a, a very rapid onset disease. There's, They look like they have neurologic problems and gastrointestinal problems, which was why we, we named it epi, epidemic, uh, epi, epizootic uh, neurologic and gastrointestinal syndrome. And it has, it's killed 50 or more chimps at Takagama over the time that it's been recognized. And it has to date a 100% case fatality rate, which means no chimp has ever survived, which is higher than the highest virulent Ebola. So um, a very scary disease, but a critical disease of conservation because it is preventing the survival of chimps in a very important repository of Western chimpanzee genetic diversity, and it's preventing the potential reintroduction of the chimps. So I became involved when um, my former PhD advisor, Richard Rangham, who you know, was talking about this problem with the director of the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance, PASA, a guy named Greg Tully. And uh, Richard mentioned that one of his former students was very much involved in chimpanzee disease investigations. So Greg contacted me and put me in touch with the staff of Takugama back in 2015 or 16. And I agreed to help because I could never turn down an ape in need. Um, and I, I, you know, it's one of these classic examples of when there was simply no way to imagine what an adventure this was going to be. I envisioned it as like a quick application of some new methods we developed for diagnosing infectious disease in primates, and then we would have an answer and, and move on. It turned out to be a five-year saga where every step of the way was where every step of the way was an adventure and a challenge. I mean, I, I we don't have time to go into the details, but imagine trying to get a crate of chimpanzee tissues out of Sierra Leone, frozen during an Ebola outbreak. Uh, so you know, a giant box. No, of, like, I, say, I can't even chimpanzee imagine that chimpanzee <laughs> brains coming over on an airplane from Sierra Leone. So. I mean, that in itself was a huge challenge, not to mention, um, you know, the emotions that we all had investigating this. The, the, I, I hadn't worked at Takagama before, but I've come to respect it a great deal, uh, because of the passion of the, the staff there who, who you've met. Um, the veterinary staff, Bala, who founded Takagama, all of the caregivers are really passionate about what they do. They believe in their cause. And each chimp that's died of this disease has been a personal tragedy to everybody. So I now feel very much a part of this community. And it became 
less and less about the science and more and more about, you know, the heartbreak and the personal stories. So to make a long story short, we threw the kitchen sink at this problem. I scrounged resources from every corner of my lab and, and we had you know, a series of students who were volunteering on this project. And we used the fanciest methods in next generation DNA sequencing to search these chimps for every possible type of infectious agent, bacteria, viruses, parasites, you name it. And we compared chimps that had died of this disease to chimps that have died of other causes. So this is a classic epidemiological case control study, which is kind of a core method at the, uh, at the heart of disease detective work. And after all that, we found a lot of different viruses, bacteria, and parasites, but only one thing popped out as being strongly associated with the cases, but absent from the controls. It was a bacterium, not a virus in this case. So I would, I would have put money on a virus because everybody knows viruses are important. It, it wasn't. It was a bacterium in an obscure genus called Sarsina. And this popped out of our bacterial metagenomics analysis. It was a new species. It was not anything that was in the databases. And once we had this, this clue from our shotgun metagenomic sequencing efforts, we went back to the tissues and actually were able to see it and grow it. We found it in places like uh, Joko's brain. Joko was a chimp who died, and we could actually see under the microscope the characteristic shape of this bacterium. It looks like a four-leaf clover inside the brain tissue of Joko. So, you know, I, I don't care what you think of a bacterium, you don't want it in your brain. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> so so and as we probe deeper, we realized that this particular new species of this bacterium, which we've provisionally called Sarsina troglodyte in honor of Pantroglodytes, the, the Latin name for chimp, um, has biochemical pathways that could explain why it's so nasty. It has a pathway that in other bacteria lets it cross over uh, cell membranes to like, for example, to get from the blood to the brain. And it has other pathways that um, allow it to produce ethanol and carbon dioxide as byproducts of its metabolism. Ethanol, you know, in moderation in a bar is great, but if a bacterium is producing it inside your brain, it's not good at all. And one of the other characteristic clinical signs in these chimps was gas-filled gastrointestinal tracts, bloat, and uh, actually gas bubbles in the walls of the intestine, which is a very serious wow. condition called emphysematous gastroenteritis. And carbon dioxide production by this bacterium could explain that. So that was a, a saga, you know, one of the hardest disease detective cases that I've ever encountered and we're still not 100% sure, but we have a strong lead and we're now implementing treatments at Takugama that are tailored towards this bacterium, even as we investigate whether it's the cause. So um, is there is there any sense uh, we uh, before we we jumped on with the podcast today, we were talking about the fact that you, you've, you've got some 
grants in the works and stuff to go back and do some study work. And, and we mentioned that we've got some projects going on with Takagama there yeah. and looking at uh, wild populations throughout the country. Um, yeah. Is there any indication that this is, or have you had a chance to see, is there any indication that this is popping up in wild populations or is it isolated to the captive population at Takagama? So we simply don't know. So the ecology of this, this disease is a mystery. We think because of the relatives of this bacterium that it's an environmental bacterium. It's found in soil. There is an association between chimpanzees who have access to forested enclosures and contracting this disease. So our best guess is that it waxes and wanes in the environment and chimps sometimes pick it up that way. We don't know if it affects the wild chimps. There are wild chimps right around there. Um, and we don't know if it's only a Takugama or it might be at other chimpanzee sanctuaries as well. There's just a ton of unknown questions. So we're, we're kind of at the very beginning stages of research into this problem. Those are the, those types of questions are what we're going after. But you know, to kind of come full circle back to East Africa and chimpanzee disease, it also became apparent from working at Takagama that the chimps there suffer respiratory disease all the time. There was a case a few years ago when influenza swept through Freetown and suddenly all the chimps became sick at the same time. It was never definitively diagnosed, but um, you know, sanctuaries and zoos and all sorts of captive populations are human wildlife interfaces just in the same way that wild populations are. So. I'm beginning to see parallels I hadn't seen before across Africa and how different populations of chimps are exposed to and suffer from uh, emerging infectious diseases. And we're, you know, as we mentioned before this, this podcast, uh, we're starting to put these pieces together into new programs. We, we have one uh, out of Uganda and the Kasisi project, which you know, which is a local schools project around Kibale National Park that we're calling Healthy Children, Healthy Chimps. Uh, the idea being that we want to, through education, bring out these, uh, the, the concept of one health and that there are linkages between the health of children, you know, who carry sniffles viruses and the health of wild apes, which can contract them and die. So these are, this is, pro this is probably going to happen in both Uganda and Sierra Leone. And it's very exciting to start of be at a stage of this work where we, we can really see the commonalities beginning to emerge all across Africa. And it's not only Africa either. There are commonalities here with orangutans, for example. They also suffer reverse zoonoses. And there are disease problems that continually hit New World primates, howler monkeys, capuchins, spider monkeys, uh, different suite of diseases there, but they also have their interesting and problematic ecology. So, you know, I think what's emerged for me and my colleagues in the last five years, I would say, is, is a much clearer global picture of the role of infectious disease in primate health and conservation around the world. The idea that on every continent and every place where there are primates, the primates are threatened not only by habitat loss and hunting, but also by disease, whether it's the uh, emergence and reemergence of endemic diseases that have always affected them or the introduction of new diseases from people or animals. That has emerged as a 
threat commensurate with deforestation and hunting in many cases. That, that, um, and with that note, I'm going to conclude with is something that uh, I, I don't know if you wrote it or it was written about you, but it there was it was talking about epidemiological Easter eggs. And it sounds <laughs> like there is it sounds like there's and it said it's sprinkled all over the landscape of the world. And I think we have to get you back at some point and talk about more Easter eggs. Because that's seasonally the timely. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, it, it was just it was such a great line that I, that's I, fine. Had, to, no, I had to, that, had to get that it. That didn't in come there. from me, but I get it. There, there, there is a certain thrill of discovery that comes with finding an epidemiological Easter egg. <laughs> well, so, and, and on that note, I want to thank you so much, Tony, for joining us. Well, you're, you're very welcome. And it, it's been a pleasure. It's great fun indeed. So thank you very much. Um, I look forward to having you on again and we'll talk again on Talking Apes. Bye-bye. Once again, I'd like to thank Tony Goldberg for sharing a little bit of an insight into some of the disease crime dramas that he explores as we try to get a better understanding of what emerging infectious diseases are all about. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts, from research to outreach, with passionate primate people and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the forefront of the news about what's happening to our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future podcasts, you can always email us at media at globio.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for everything she does behind the scenes. And finally, I'd like to thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by listeners like you who support us through Globio at globio.org with your tax-deductible donation. Until next time, I'm Jerry Ellis, and you've been listening to Talking Apes.